Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Eat, Sleep, Work with Pete. It's a podcast about workplace culture, psychology, and life. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you for joining today. A couple of things before we kick off. Uh, I've announced a couple of free events and you can find out details of them in the link at the top of the show notes. Also, it went out on the newsletter. So the first of them is a very intimate event and that's myself and Rory Sutherland in conversation. And that's going to be taking place on Tuesday, the 27th of September at six o'clock. And you can find details in the notes below. Very intimate event. It's not being streamed or recorded. So uh, the only way to see that, participate that, is turning up on the night. And that's hosted by Radix Big Tent Foundation. And Big Tent Foundation are a non-partisan organisation that tries to help individuals who've been left behind by party politics. I spoke at the the Radix Big Tent event in Bristol this year and uh, we're putting on an event there. So it's a a wonderful group of people who attend those events and and, uh, so it should be great. And Rory clearly is just this formidable intellect. So it'll be fascinating to have the discussion and debate with him. I'm really looking forward to that. Separately, I'm also doing an event with the RSA. Now the RSA, uh, you'll possibly have even been to an event if you're ever in London. They've got a place down in uh, John Adams Street, which is just around the back of the Strand. And this event is going to be a hybrid event. So it's free and you can join, you can get a, a live streaming ticket for free or you can come along for free to the RSA. So fabulous to partner with the RSA. I did something with them in the midst of lockdown. So I'm so thrilled to do uh, something in person. So two really lovely events, both free that you can come along to. If you are in person, then uh, you can hang around and have a chat or you can buy a copy of Fortitude. But I'm thrilled to be able to offer those things for, for zero charge. So uh, so fabulous. And, and uh, thank you to, to both the RSA and to the Big Tent Foundation for helping uh, put those things together and to Rory for participating. Today's episode is about something that I've been intrigued about myself. It's about the art of storytelling. And as today's guest, Kate Tellers works for The Moth. And if you've ever, if you're one of the 100 million people who listens to a Moth podcast every year, or you've ever attended a Moth event, Moth events are about true stories told live. Now, I found myself in a situation recently where I was thinking, you know, I want to... I want to think about the way I present, the, the way I connect with audiences. And so I, I spent a long time thinking about it. And, you know, I did, 
I did some stuff watching comedians, actually. I did some stuff um, thinking about great presentations. And I found myself um, listening to the American version of the moth book that we're going to talk about today. So the book is called How to Tell a Story, uh, by the, the Moth's Guide to How to Tell a Story. It's fabulous. Uh, the thing I would strongly say is that not only is it a good book, it's an incredible audiobook because they not only tell you the transcript of what someone said, you hear someone saying it. So there's one thing hearing, this is the fastest storyteller we've ever had on stage, and then reading, this is the slowest storyteller we're having, but then to hear them, it's just incredible because it immediately makes you think pace. Wow, how important is pace as part of delivery? The moth has got a really clear framework that's learned, that's learned from years of running, 25 years of, of the moth events. They've learned what stories work. And the book is this incredible coach, really, that tells you how to think about your own stories. The thing that I found personally helpful for it, so here's how this podcast came about. I listened to that I as a fan, and then I saw three months hence, I saw this in June, that they had a UK version of the book coming out. I was like, right, I am going to beg and pester them to come on. And so that, sure enough, uh, the publisher announced it. But I found two things. I found there was really real value in self-knowledge, in trying to think of what are my stories? How would I tell a story but secondly trying to think of applications for that and one thing Kate says in this conversation she says look you know first and foremost um, the moth actually she talks about this the moth actually go into organizations and run storytelling sessions for team members and the real value is twofold not only is the art of understanding the construction of a story of value but when people tell their personal stories to each other, they feel a strength of connection that they lacked before. First, it was this person that you're always seeing on a Zoom call and you don't know anything about them. Now it becomes rendered in flesh and, flesh and blood, this vivid story that you want to see how it plays out. So the first thing about connection. The second part is that if we understand how stories matter and connect with us we can just make our own delivery of messages more interesting the whole of life is filled with us watching things that are boring and pretending not to be bored right the average state of you sitting in a meeting is you staring at a screen pretending to listen and don't pretend you listen to everything because you don't so you we're in this state of pretending to listen when someone arrives who's thought about, I want to deliver this in a captivating, memorable, interesting, involving way. It's, it's just this enriching things. It helps everyone. You know, the, you forget that everyone's transformed. Anyway, that's why I wanted to talk to them. We have a really lovely discussion. And, you know, the one thing I'd say to you is that I, uh, the, the audio book of this is, you know, could be a great gift for someone or just a great lesson. Oh, look, you could, you could do the actual book. I rarely sell books that hard. But I've, re I've really enjoyed listening to this. I've really enjoyed listening to it. Anyway, so let me give an introduction and we'll jump in. So, uh, so Kate, she mentions along the way, Kate Tellers, uh, she mentions a couple of stories. 
And I've included both of those stories in the show notes. Kate Tellers is a storyteller, a host, a director of The Moth, and she's a co-author of the new book that they've just published, which is How to Tell a Story, The Essential Guide to Memorable Storytelling. Uh, she's also told her own moth stories, and I've included those in the show notes as well. Um, a really wonderful discussion. I think you're going to get so much from this. Here's my conversation with The Moth's Kate Tellers. Thank you so much for joining me. I'd love to kick off if you could just introduce who you are and what you do. Sure. Uh, my name is Kate Tellers, and I'm a senior director at the not-for-profit storytelling organization, The Moth. And I'd love to hear a little bit, little bit of the origin story of The Moth, if, if you'd share that with us. Sure, sure. Yep. People have a lot of ideas about where the name moth came from, but we're actually named after the the bug, the actual bug, the predator bug in some cases. We were founded in 1997 by an author named George Dawes Green, and he's originally from the South. So he, uh, the South of the United States, uh, Georgia. And so he used to sit on his friend Wanda's porch and everyone would tell stories on the porch. Uh, He sold a few books, and when he came to New York City, he really was struck by the fact that he would go to poetry events and spoken word events, and um, he was more interested in what people were saying to introduce the the poems than the actual poems. He found that connection, you know, sort of reminiscent of what he felt on this, this, uh, his friend Wanda's porch, you know, that was really what he craved. So he just invited uh, some people to come. It started in his living room and sit down and, and share stories from their lives. And the idea was it had to be a true story and the audience couldn't interrupt. It couldn't be at a cocktail party where everyone's sort of jumping in and, you know, adding their own anecdote and trying to steer the conversation in their way. And um, the, or it, that proved to be a, a huge success. And we started to do events in uh, smaller theaters in, the, in, in downtown Manhattan, then larger theaters uh, in um, New York City. And we've since sold out Lincoln Center and the Sydney Opera House and three 3000 and Union Chapel in London and, um, you know, huge, huge venues. And um, we record all of our shows and many of those stories go on to be on our Peabody Award winning Moth Radio Hour on our podcast, which is downloaded 100 million times per year. They're anthologized in our books and our three books before the one that we've just put out and um, have launched several training programs and have really just uh, created an entire world and ecosystem of storytelling. The name moth, I said it was a bug, uh, is reminiscent of that. Um, it's the moths that used to fly onto Wanda's porch and would go towards that light bulb. And it speaks to the community that builds mm. when we share our stories and when we listen, when we take the time to listen to each other's stories and the way we all sort of gravitate together as people. The reason why I love this book, and as I was saying to you before, I've both listened to it and read it, is because it feels like a sort of personal coach taking you through some of the things that you might consider, some of the ways that you might tell a story. And we all find ourselves telling stories. We all find, whether it's in a professional capacity or we're asked to speak at a wedding or we're asked to advocate for someone, we're all telling stories. In fact, you know, you talk about how people might think about the stories they tell in, or the book talks about this, the stories people might tell in job interviews. So we, all, we often find ourselves in, in a, a moment to tell stories. The, the moth have got a certain philosophy of stories, a, a certain sort of framework, true stories told out loud in the first person. They're not read out. There's got to involve stakes. How do you think those 
um, those pillars of moth stories have have been reached. And and what what are the particular reasons why you've reached those those foundational anchors? Oh, it's interesting. So how? Well, you've named a few of them. So I'll touch on a few of them. We reach these pillars by doing it. You know, in the very beginning, like I said, it was a group of people, you know, one person standing up and telling a story and then, you know, and and seeing what the crowd responded to and what we understood and what we felt, you know, a phrase we say a lot at the moth is, you know, when, when we feel the roof lifted. Um, something that I think is really special and unique about moth storytelling. And I come from a performance background. So before I went to my first moth event, I'd been an audience member or a cast member in hundreds of shows. And it was at the moth that I felt, you know, the roof lift, or as I say, people breathing the same breath. There's like a connection and an interchange between the storyteller and the audience where it's one person speaking audibly, but it's like a dialogue. And what we really search for at the moth is that human connection. It goes back to the moths going to the flame. So the principles of what makes a great moth story sort of come from that. How do we create that kind of mothy magic? So we always find, you know, that first and foremost, let's talk about truth and truth is completely related to vulnerability. That when someone tells a true story from their lives and what is true to them as a human, not what is factually true that they want to communicate to an audience, we as human beings respond to that. They're letting us in. Human beings respond to vulnerability within e- within each other. Not to embarrass you, but I was just listening to your podcast about men and friends, and you touch on a lot of these themes. And I was like, <laughs> so I was like, yes, this is. I love the way the way you were looking at it. Not to whatever, but um. So the, you know, that's where we really started to to look at that. Is um, truth is really important. Embellishments distance us from the audience because if our audience is being and moth audiences are great, but moth audiences are com- are comprised of humans. You know, if you are a, a human being that is seeking to make connection with another human being, you can sense when someone is being honest with you, and you can be compassionate and empathetic um, with uh, to their true experiences. So that starts truth as like the, you know, like kind of bedrock pedestal. And then, you know, speaking to something really technical, like we don't read, we have people tell their stories that speaks to just the practical way that you get people to that, that we find that if someone's reading their words, they're focusing on what their words are. But if they're sharing a story, like we don't say perform a story, we sort of try to, everyone says it, it, it seeps in, but really like, it's not a performance, it's sharing a story. So when you're sharing a story, you're not thinking, does this sentence come before this sentence? Or, oh no, I messed up my prepositions. You're thinking, what is the essence? What is the truthful essence of the experience that I'm sharing? And how can I communicate that to this audience? And if I trip up and need to go back and remember something, or if I stumble over a word, it doesn't matter. That makes me all the more human as a storyteller. And as an audience member, we just think, well, that's a person really sharing who they are in this moment. Um, So that sort of speaks Mm. to the truth piece of it um, from both a philosophical and a practical yeah. <laughs> point. And, and the first person element, I guess it's quite critical if, if you want to connect with the storyteller, not telling a story that they've had passed to them or that these is a family legend. Is that right? Is that you've tried to avoid people just turning up and sharing a family yarn? Absolutely. I mean, you know, the, I love fiction. I love, you know, historical nonfiction. I love there's 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 much value in telling stories that are not specifically and uniquely our own. But that does go back to that um, emotional connection that we have with the stories is that the story has to be about your truth and your emotional connection to it. And you're also speaking to like 
let's parse out the difference between say a eulogy and a moth story that you tell on Mm. stage. Um, A eulogy, you may be incredibly connected to the person that you're talking about and the stories that you're telling about them, but there's probably no arc. There's no change. You know, it's, you're not saying, I mean, I'm sure there are eulogies that are like, I hated this person when they were younger and now, you know, I ended up marrying them. That would be a hilarious eulogy, but the traditional eulogy is not that. And there's a time and a place for that. But at The Moth, what we find really powerful is that transformation that happens within the story. It's who are you in the beginning of the story and where is your where are your emotional stakes? What do you care about? And then who are you at the end of the story? And how has this experience changed you? And that's a, a way that we as listeners can kind of reflect on that experience and sort of more deeply understand the storyteller when we see them go through some sort of transformation versus seeing something that's kind of all one note. Yeah, that was what I found most interesting, because I guess the, the process that a lot of people go into things, maybe they're in a situation where they need to think of a story or they want to tell a story, or they're, they're just, actually, there's a degree of self-knowledge about thinking about what your own stories are that I found personally insightful and revealing. Trying to ask yourself, what are my stories? What are this, you know, this, there's something in the book talking about what would be your go-to stories in you know various situations. And it really poses a question of you to think, okay, well, what can I mine for stories here? What can I, what can I capture? And the really, I found that a really helpful signpost that there needed to be change. There needed to be, there needed to be stakes. There needed to be, um, then, you know, one of the things in the book talks about the importance of decisions as creating a story in the sense that there was a, a moment where I chose to do this or this, and I then saw through the consequences of it. So that was really helpful for me, sort of mining those things and looking to those things. But does that prove a problem to some people when they're trying to find a story that they can't find something that they consider significant enough? They, they can't feel that there's something of importance enough. How do, how do you help people find their stories or what advice would you give? Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. It doesn't matter what's happened to you in our life, in your life. You know, we are human beings, we are fallible, and we all contain contain some degree of insecurity. So I will tell you, someone who has, you know, saved someone's life, summited a mountain, whatever, is very likely still to come to us and say, I don't know if I have any stories. You know, like, no one thinks they have stories, and everything, everyone knows they have stories. You know, that happens in concert. There's sort of no way to to predict it. So I think what you've identified, I love it when you can teach the book. This is amazing, Bruce. But, like, what you've identified (laughs) is really, like, zooming in on those moments. Like, just start looking at change moments. Or I love the idea of, of George, our founder, is very into this idea of decisions. And one of the things that I like about decisions that's sort of baked into good storytelling with it is that a decision has to be, if you're remembering a decision, you you had to care about it to some degree, you know, whether it's, you know, what, what you cho- chose as a vocation in your life, whether you chose to say yes to a second date, um, what happened when you saw something terrible on the street? Like, all, you know, what did, what did you choose to do when you saw something terrible on the street? Like all of those things, you, you, if you're remembering them as a decision, they're probably like a nugget or a seed for your story. But then um, they also speak to this idea that stories are not what happens to us. Stories are how we respond to the events in our lives or, or, you know, who we are in, I shouldn't say not respond, who we are in those events in our lives. Because Bruce, if you and I could experience the exact same thing and share a very different experience of it, because I'm going to bring my entire lived experience to it and you're going to bring your entire lived experience to it. And that's the beauty. We'd get 
two different stories that we could both really connect on. Like thematically, there'd probably be some similarities and obviously plot points, there'd be similarities, but there's that uniqueness where I would get an insight as to who you are by how you processed and thought about and told and cared about that same series of events. And and is it that, so what would hook people in about that? Is it the specificity of it? Is it about the... Um, I'm just thinking specifically, you, you you know, maybe you're going through something where you think, okay, I've, I think I've got the basis of a story here. How do you, how would you even try to draw people into that? Is it, is it about trying to think of the detail that might be relatable? I'm, I'm really struck by the similarity with songwriting, that often it's in songwriting, you know, in a Taylor Swift song, sometimes it's the real specificity of no one else could have ever experienced that in exactly the same way that strangely makes it transcendent and relatable. And I, I find that really sort of an interesting concept that, you know, almost the fact that only you could have experienced it, but you're so vividly describing it, can somehow allow more people to anchor into it. So I'm just interested in what are the things that hook people into a story. Uh, your specifics, you're absolutely correct. I'm always, always, always like... When I, when I look at stories highlighting, can you say this more specifically? Can you give a specific example? Can you? And I think one of the reasons that specifics are so compelling in storytelling is that the more specific that you are, the more your audience knows exactly where you are and how they relate to it. So there's this thing where weirdly the specificity then breeds like a universality to the story. Mm. So if you take something like a, a common life experience, like a wedding day or something, if one person is saying, well, I felt X at this time, if you've had a similar experience, maybe you felt like X plus one or, you know, you felt something similar and then you mm. kind of get it because you're like, oh, they're over here on it. But then there's also just the idea that every moth story has like a kind of overarching sort of thread through it, sort of theme. So a lot of the time, even if we haven't, you know, there are many stories, like a wedding is, you know, a common experience all over the world, but there are many things that are not common where you know, that you hear on the moth, really, really unique experiences, an astronaut, you know, tightening a screw in space or something like that. Um, and you're going to, but, but even through that, these bigger themes and the story I've just Throughout out here. This is Mike Massimino. He's an astronaut. He tells this, this story about going out in space with the Hubble telescope and, and then um, realizing that the screw was stripped and, you know, billions of dollars have been poured into this or whatever. But the thing that comes into his head is, you know, my, my children are going to think I'm a failure, which is very relatable to a lot of us. But, yeah. you know, regardless of whether it was my children who thought I was going to be a failure, whatever's going through his head, there's those bigger themes of like success and failure and pressure to perform. And, you know, all of these things that even if we haven't been floating in space in a great deal of stress, we understand as empathetic human beings. Um, and that specificity, specificity really draws us into it. So that's definitely what I look for in a story. And oftentimes, like the content of a story pitch or of a story is interesting. But what's more interesting to me is like zooming, like what makes this experience unique, mm. even if it was a really high stakes situation. You know, if, if you if you were not. um if it's a high stakes scenario, but you do not have an emotional stake in it and you cannot articulate specifically why you had an emotional stake in it, it's very likely that your audience will disengage. Whereas if you, I'll give you another example of a story. We have Gail Simmons, who is on the Food Network here in the US, tells a story about going on her honeymoon to Vietnam and being obsessed with this one particular bowl of this restaurant that sells only these noodles. 
And the entire story is about her desire to get a bowl of noodles, which is not, I mean, you know, who cares? Get noodles. You're in Vietnam. You can find noodles, you know. But because it's that important, because she cares that much, it's a story because there's reasons that she's going. There's everything she puts herself through, what her what she physically feels like when she's trying to have it, what happens when she doesn't get it. You know, it's a story about getting a bowl of noodles, but it's not. It's a story about wanting something so badly and what happens when you don't get it, which we can all relate to. That's so fascinating because that's and and. Firstly, it's an illustration of why we might have many more stories than we believe we've got to tell, because just trying to see something that effectively is an emblem of something bigger. Is there a way that you would advise someone when someone sits down and they say, right, okay, I need to work through, is is that about skilled probing saying, tell me more, tell me more, why are you drawn to that story? What do you think it signifies? Or what would help her find that story? You know, I don't know who helped her with that one, but what what processes would be involved? Because if someone's taking themselves through this process themselves, what questions should they be asking or what should they advise someone to, to ask them? Well, um, as you know, because you've read the book, everyone that appears on our Moth main stage works with a director who does, I, I like the way you put it, skilled probing, <laughs> you know, that is what we do. And so the developing of a story is very much a dialogue where we ask questions. So I'll tell you as a director, what I ask for is I'm not going to, you know, if, I'm not going to ask the big question of, of like, why do you care? Like that might be hard for someone to answer because they haven't quite gotten through it. And a lot of the, you know, they might not have the answer at that point. And a lot of the, what I think is so valuable about storytelling is the process of understand, of really thinking about our experiences and how we want to share them often gives us clarity on our own experience. So that dialogue that you have with a moth director or the dialogue you would have with yourself or whomever is helping you craft your story is oftentimes shaping the story. It's not simply the ordering of information. It's like how you relate to the information that you want to share. So if you came to me and said, Kate, I want to tell you a story about this bike race where I fell off my bike and lost, I wouldn't necessarily say, what does that mean to you? But I might start with the, you know, I'll get background. How often have you been biking? What has biking been in your life for you? Do you have other, you know, I'd ask questions around it. And then I'd start to listen to, for patterns oh, well, it sounds like every time you've described doing this, you've done this with your dad. So what was your dad's relationship with it? You know, like what's your relationship with health or physical fitness? Are you a competitive family? And I just, you know, as a director, you just start to listen for like those patterns or those what's unique or what's the tell or where do I feel? Very often these conversations are very emotional. So where do I see emotion coming up? And what does that emotion mean? And if, if I feel the storyteller is ready to tell the story, how can we um, really look at that emotion and, and understand that emotion and find the place for that in the story? It's just like a matter of finding leads. Um, and it is, again, it's specific questions. It's not like the larger abstract. It's really that, like, how do I dig into this moment? Or how do I dig into this moment? And then what do I discover? And then how does what I discover relate to the other things that I've discovered before and how will some of what I'm discovering then make a coherent story? That, I guess, leads me on to a question about structure. You know, should a story be a three-act story? Should a story be something... How should we be thinking? Specifically, the one thing that really springs to mind to me, quite often when I'm in a zone, when I'm thinking about whether presentations or stories, I often think... Yeah, you spent so much time thinking about the start and the middle. 
And the ending just felt like it was, and that's that. You know, it's sort of an anticlimactic <laughs> thing. Should we be thinking about beginnings and middles as uh, beginnings and ends as two parts of the same thing? You know, should a, a story neatly tie up at the end? How would you think about different chapters? Well, okay. So uh, very simply, the structure of your story should be uh, what will most effectively communicate your story to your audience? Right. So in some, like, for example, and I'm, you know, I'm sure you saw this in the book, there are people that start their stories with a flashback and then they jump mm-hmm. and then they, you know, jump whatever, and then they jump in time. Um, you can tell your story in a linear fashion, but telling your story in a linear fashion is a, is a choice. It's not a rule. It is the way that your audience will best understand your story. So you have to understand sort of what is the larger story that I'm trying to tell. I'm trying to tell about how in this moment I realized that um, you know, my sister had always, um, had always imitated me, uh, had, had always looked up to me. And this is the first time she broke away. You know, and the first time I felt her broke away, this would be first person. Um, so, uh, so sometimes in terms of like actual structure, you might, you know, you might not tell it in a linear fashion, you might, whatever, but in terms of beginning and ending specifically, they should always relate. The end is in the beginning. The beginning is in the end. Um, so there should be a connection. You should go from one place to one place. And I often, I find this so helpful. And I often, when I teach storytelling, have people do this is like, once you have a general idea of your story, think about your first line and think about your last line. And if they're completely at odds with each other, if you can't get an idea of the essence of your story by those first and last lines, which oftentimes are the only lines that I encourage people to explicitly script, then there's something missing. And very often we start our stories too early and we end them too late and then we have to tighten the vise and then those things become clearer. That being said, story, stories that tie up neatly in a bow often ring untrue because life doesn't tie up neatly in a and a bow. So you should feel, we should feel sated by the story, but we should feel, uh, we should know that life goes on from that. So, and particularly when we tell stories about big events, like I came to the moth because I wanted to tell a story about my mother who had passed away. You know, there'll never be a day when I don't miss my mother, but I do have closure on that, some closure on elements of that experience, you know, and like, that's where the story comes from. That doesn't mean, well, she's gone, but I don't miss, you know, like, that's it. She was my mom. Bye. It's okay. So this was this experience. And this is how I went through this experience. And this is how it changed me. And this is how it sort of forever changed me, but not this experience doesn't continue to affect me and to inform my life in some way. You, you touch on a really critical part there, which is the the process after you've sort of crafted a story, the process of delivering that story. And Mm -hmm. I think most people will know that whether they've um, rehearsed a presentation or or something and they've learned it off by heart and the almost um, terrifying and and sort of stultifying process of forgetting the next line when you've learned it by rote makes the delivery of you know, we've all been in an audience where we've watched someone who's learned something by rote deliver it. And it's this horrible mechanical thing that if you ask them afterwards over a coffee to tell you the presentation, they'd probably give an, a 60, 70% decent a, approximation, but with so much more heart and character. And so that idea that you only encourage people to learn the first line and the last line is really intriguing. What way would people think then to navigate their way through a story? If they're, if they're terrified of forgetting critical elements of it? Well, um, the, story should, uh, the story should never feel like rote or rehearsed. I think we're, we're agreeing. But the story, you should, 
prepare and prepare well to share your story. And I think what happens is you'll script your first line and you'll script your last line. And everyone's a little bit different. Some people script a lot more, some people script a lot less. But when we work with a storyteller, we have prepared together. We know you go from here to here to here to here to here. And like we know your landing pads. And what ends up happening is you rehearse the story is much of the story is exactly the same way every time that you share it. It's the same way when if you have a story that you share at a cocktail party, you're going to share most of your phrases are going to be the same. It's just like it becomes baked into to who you are and how you share it. But you should have a freedom from those phrases. You know, you're again, you're sharing the emotion of it. You're sharing something present in the moment. You're not thinking, I didn't say that it was a blue-ish stare. I said it was a stare. Shoot, I need to, you know, like I screwed it up. Mm. Um, and so uh, so you should definitely know like the, the map of the story is very intentionally built. Details that need to be in different parts of the story are very intentionally put in. But when you're thinking about, when you're sharing the story, what's in your brain is not the page. What's in your brain is sort of the what comes next or the images of the story. Yeah. You're like, you're present, you're walking through this experience with the audience, which engages the audience so much more than if they see you like scrolling through a script in your head. Yeah, it's really, and the experience of being in the audience when someone is fluently trying to recall details and, and bringing you through, it's cap more captivating, there's someone, something more human than these presentations where people try and get it word perfect and it ends up, Lacking some humanity, I guess. Yeah. The, the, the Moth organization has worked with companies and, mm -hmm. and done some corporate stuff. And, and mm -hmm. I'd be just so interested to hear how you help companies. Is this about company stories, about the principles of storytelling in presentations? How would you help members of organizations? And, and what adaptations do you need to make to the Moth approach? Sure. So I've uh, been the leading our MothWorks program for over a decade now, and there's many things that I've learned from going into hundreds of businesses and everything else, um, and all these different experiences, and you know, from uh, financial institutions to nonprofits to marketers to create. You know, I've worked in many audiences, but the one thing that I always come back to, and that we always start with, and I think we always will, is that we start with personal stories. You know, we want to hear, um, and we do this through workshops and we'll do sort of customized events, but let's look at workshops. We want people to go through the experience of understanding story structure and sharing story through the experience of looking at it um, through their own personal stories. Um, we find that that is the, the quickest way. Um, it's the best way. It's what we do best to sort of teach moth storytelling, but also at its fundamental basis, what you will get when you bring storytelling into a company is it a really cohesive team building moment. Um, and oftentimes that's simply all we're brought in to do is how do we get this group of people that don't interact or don't understand each other um, or don't communicate or, are, you know, we're having trouble like kind of get on the same page. How do we do that? We bring in and they share personal stories and they can be around themes that are relevant to work, themes that are a part of the offsite, or they can be completely unrelated. You know, my clients often are like, can they be that? And it really doesn't matter. Like just get people to give space to their own experiences and share it with their colleagues. And inevitably I hear, I've known you, I've sat next to you for five years. I've never understood you in the way that I do now. You know, we hear these like gorgeous, like uh, life cracking, you know, experiences sort of come out. And, you know, the same thing that happens in businesses, like storytelling is storytelling wherever it is. It doesn't change in business. So oftentimes people say like, I never understood this about me until now. And now they've had that experience of understanding 
their own life and their, themselves with their colleagues in a, in a safe, supported space um, that that brings them all together. So we find that to be simply important. But then moving past that, there's this idea of the way we build culture. And I think, you know, particularly as businesses get larger and larger, there's this, we, we lose a sense of community and culture and what our values are. So a lot of what people are doing in businesses is they're sharing stories, their own personal stories. Again, we, we are always driving towards the personal of what, like, okay, so let's say um, we've a, we're working with a company right now who is, um, wants to be the most inclusive company in the world. Well, what does inclusivity mean on a specific level when you speak about it? How do we speak about that in a way that human beings understand? Well, let's look at our personal stories and let's look at how we can share stories about um, about being outsiders, about being insiders, and how we can sort of come together and hear those stories and create kind of a dialogue around that that really elevates mm. and supports the culture that you're trying to build. Um, and then the, the third sort of major thing that we see is that... Um, Storytelling is just an effective communication tool. And in business in particular, people need to communicate information and people are bored and they need Mm. like the human connection to the information that's being shared to absorb and to remember maybe some of the drier or more technical information. So using a story to set up a set of uh, some data or, or thread through as you're presenting data or information, using a story to understand why you believe Uh, a group of people should buy into an idea or a principle or a change or anything else is so much more effective than saying like, this is what we will be doing. Um, And such an effective leadership tool, of course, because people can understand why the person who is directing my next course of action is asking me to do this, to believe in this, to, to change in this way. In those instances, would there be a permitted divergence from them being personal stories? Because I'm just interested in, in in that instance. Would you allow some degree of license taking? Yeah, I mean, I am I am not God. People can do what they want to do. <laughs> I wish I had that power, but I, I do not have it. Um, what we do in our workshops is we, we really do focus on the personal. <clears throat> There's a lot of, but of course, there is a lot of... Um, uh, direct translation into stories that are not first person. And we certainly like, yeah. you know, we're talking about case studies or we're talking about like in, in the case of like nonprofits or NGOs, like the work that we do and how do we share that? How do, how do they effectively communicate the work that they're doing when that's often sometimes their story is less important than the story of the people that they're potentially serving or supporting, you know? Um, so there's certainly a direct translation and we look at that a lot of the time, like what are the bigger themes? Um, what are, you know, elements like looking at details, looking at the way these experiences have changed people, understanding content, like all of these things sort of are important regardless of whether they're first person stories, but we always find our way in is always with the personal because then people have an emotional stake in what is being shared. And you sort of, it just, to me, is the most explicit way to sort of understand those fundamental elements of storytelling that certainly apply beyond first person. There's a really interesting thread that I've drawn from what you've talked about, which I I think, you know, we should, um, we should never underestimate the fact that most people are, are in a default state of being bored because partly because they're overloaded with information. You know, we imagine if, if you th- think about the experience of a lot of people for, for the last two years, 
They've sat staring into a screen, hearing something that is clearly important to the person saying it, but is largely undifferentiated from the five or six hours that they've been staring to the screen that day. And, you know, now the person delivering that thinks, the, finally, I'm presenting my slides in the course of this day. And so everyone will be paying attention. And they fundamentally misunderstand message sent, which is everyone's going to be reading my bullet points, everyone's going to be listening to this, to message received, which is someone sitting there thinking, I'm just going to get some emails done while this presentation's going on and I've crafted my face so I look like I'm paying attention. And that absence of empathy is very similar, that absence of interest is very similar to you saying, when colleagues sit down and they hear the story of someone in front of them, they suddenly transfer from being a face on a Zoom to being, oh, someone who's got a backstory and is intriguing and someone I care about and I want to hear what the next stage of this person is. And they, they both seem to be related to some extent. If we're going to make connections with people, other than the messages we're giving or on rep- the, the people we represent, we've got to give people a reason to care. That strikes me as a, a fundamental component here. Absolutely. we have, Absolutely. It's like just the idea of giving memorable specific details is so small, but also like the phrase that I always get from my clients is like assault by information. You know, you just say to someone, this is what we're doing and here's all the data to support it. Goodbye. But telling a story and adding something personal to it, and maybe this is when I was skeptical about this idea and here's the moment that I realized you know, this is really important or really special or really effective or whatever. And so here's where I'm landing, taking your audience on that journey and like giving them like a framework to understand why they should care about something is so, so much more interesting and illuminating than plunk. Here's all my supporting, you know, evidence and here are my bullet points. Goodbye. Absolutely. Are there any things that for you are the big turnoffs for stories, you know, when people do things, the, the, the thing that's really sort of triggered it in my head is when you say, when you try, tie a story too much in a bow, it sort of feels a bit saccharine. It feels a bit artificial. Are there any other big pitfalls that potentially people should avoid? Um, okay. I'll tell you a couple and I'll end with the one that's really the, the, that I care the most about, but of, of course, great story. A great story isn't I'm great. Here's how I was great. In conclusion, I am great. You know, again, it, like honesty is my North Star. That is a boring story. That is the story that is talking at someone. The truth of any situation is not that you were great all of the time. The more interesting story to me is not that you run, ran the marathon. The more interesting story to me is the moment that you almost turned back. That's where you're vulnerable and that's where you're human. And that's what I want to see. And that goes again, like, again, we're talking about truth, truth, truth over and over again. Like, that's why I don't like stories that are tied up in a bow because it's nothing is tied up in a bow. I mean, you know, of course, like there's, you can end a story in the moment that you realize you loved the person that you're still married to 65 years later. There has to be something like specific about that moment um, that really, that for me to be gut punched by it. Or, you know, something that you've overcome, something like that. Mm. But the other thing for me in particular, and I I am always like, this is a note that I give over and over again, is I don't want to know what happens until it happens. Because when you say to someone, this is the story about how I understood that, um, that uh, letting go was going to help me be better. Then I'm like, well, 
I already know where I'm going. Like I'm so much less engaged versus if I know what you really care about the beginning of your story and then you take me through it in scene, I am there right with you. I'm breathing with you. I'm thinking with you. I'm sweating. I'm happy. I'm sad. Like the beautiful thing about storytelling is that we get to synchronize with strangers, you know, and to giving it all away, like to, it just completely kicks me out of the story. And then I think like, but I saw that coming, you know. Right. So it's almost leaving them to join the dots, leaving them to hit the aha moment in this, in, in empathy with you. Exactly. And we need to know, like, that's why stakes are so important. We need to know why we care so much about those moments so that we can be there and say like, oh my gosh, did the letter come today? Oh, like, it, you know, be there with the shaking hands that are opening the mailbox. Of course, we need to know why that's important. But then I want experience. I want to know at the same time as you what happens when you open that envelope. In, in your time, so you've, you've worked 10 years, more than 10 years with, with them off. Um, in your time, could you give us one or two stories that really have stood out for you and, and what you felt was special about them? Oh, oh, I have 12 million stories that have stuck out to me. But I'll tell you, okay, I'll tell you a few. <laughs> um, I've, I've had this interesting opportunity where I've gotten to tell a lot of uh, stories with Catholic sisters, which is very strange. For me personally, I grew up, my parents grew up Catholic and sort of left the church. And then I got to be one-on-one with these Catholic sisters and some of these amazing women. So one of them told a story about, um, what I loved about the story is she tells us about the first time she witnesses, she doesn't know she's going to be a Catholic sister. She's in a very serious relationship with the boy she's going to marry. And she witnesses the work of what the sisters are doing. And these are particularly sisters that help people at the end of their life. And she taught me a phrase that I've been obsessed with ever since. And she says, I saw, I found the pearl of great price. Like I found the thing. So there's the stakes, you know? And then the story is about, but she loves this man so much. So how is she going to do it? And she actually, she can't tell him. She can't tell him. He takes her to her fittings for her habits and sits outside. He thinks she's volunteering and she's being fitted for a habit, looking out the window, looking at him. Um, you know, like heartbroken. And ultimately she has to tell him and there's a gorgeous scene because she chooses, she found the, you know, the stakes are there. She found the pearl of great price and she had to follow it and she had to give up this other great love. So I love this because it challenges a dominant narrative. I love it because it's, I love love stories. Um, And I love it because um, it just makes something complex that so much of us see is simple and it's a heart, you know, it's a beautiful, heartbreaking love story. Um, Is that on the archive? It is. It is. That's Sister oh, cool. Carolyn Martin. That. Martin find that and put yeah. Link. yeah. You know, every storyteller I work with, I fall completely in love with. You know, we were talking, I'll give you one other example. Gosh, there's like 12 million. Yeah. I worked with a storyteller who was uh, an actor in The Silence of the Lambs. Small part. Again, I'm, I'm using this as a teachable story, but um, it's not enough to just be like, guess what? I was in Silence of the Lambs. Like, who cares? You know what I mean? Like, that's, I, look at me. I'm great. This yeah. is a downtown theater actor, always looking for his big break, always looking for his big break. He finally gets on the set of this movie, he gets this tiny bit part. And the major scene of the story is um, him effing it up. And Jonathan Demme is outside. Anthony Hop- He's acting opposite Anthony Hopkins. And he's looking for that groove that he gets into when he does down. And he knows he's a good actor and he's losing. He keeps messing up the language he can. And so the stakes are all there. So it's not, look at me, I'm this great actor. It's what happens when this thing that you've been working for your entire life in that moment comes true and you lose it or almost lose it, um, which is one of the reasons that I love that story. Is that on the archive as well? 
Josh Broder told that story, oh, yes. Wonderful. I'll find both of them. Thank you so much, listener. <laughs> I um, have to say that, you know, while the, the book is wonderful, the audio book is a delight because it includes clips from these it includes the astronaut telling the uh the yeah. story and you know him saying that he's just terrified that his kids are going to remember that are going to hear this story about how his dad effed up the Hubble telescope he's uh he's just <laughs> he's just wonderful to hear so I, I adored this and I'm, I'm so thrilled with the with the generosity of yourself and of the organization into sharing these moments and um, thank you so okay. much I'm, I'm so grateful for the chance to talk to you Oh, thanks so much, Bruce. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Kate. As I mentioned, uh, both of those stories in the show notes. And uh, look, you know, I'm captivated by some of these things. But sometimes there's so many stories on the Moths archive that you need a degree of curation. You need someone pointing you out in the direction. Thank you. I've been Bruce Daisley. If you're interested in uh, coming along to any of those events, obviously it's a time thing. Um, I'm As I'm saying this today, there's two weeks before the events, but obviously, um, you know, move soon if you want to come along. I've been Bruce Daisley. Always welcome you getting in touch. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.